Revelation, Return of the King, has been the series we have been in this year. We'll be starting here in a message entitled, The Eye of the Storm. Now, most of us remember 2017's hurricane season as the most devastating in U.S. history. The final damage total was upward of $216 billion. And the experts tell us that 90% of that season's damage was due to three major hurricanes. That was Hurricane Harvey, Irma, and Maria. You remember Hurricane Harvey slammed the Texas coast as a category number four. The winds of 130 miles an hour, and listen to this, the storm dumped 60 inches of rain. When Harvey made landfall on the 26th of August, the Weather Service issued the warning, this event is unprecedented and all impacts are unknown beyond anything experienced. The storm, as you know, caused massive flooding around the Houston area, and by the end, 107 people lost their lives in the rising waters. Well, then on the hills of Harvey came Irma just two weeks later, and when Irma hit Florida, it was a Category 5 storm with winds upwards of 180 miles an hour. Irma ravaged Florida and claimed 135 lives. And then later on that year, in September, Maria made landfall. She was also a Category 5 storm, and she blew through the Caribbean. In fact, that was the one that hit Puerto Rico so bad. And the electric grid was totally devastated. 3.4 million people went without power during that. And because of the infrastructure debacle, it's estimated that about 4,600 people lost their lives because they had no power, no water to get to, and no medical care. And so these were three devastating storms. Now, one of the many amazing photos that emerged from that hurricane season was a satellite image that was taken of Hurricane Irma. And she enveloped the entire island of Barbuda. There you see the eye of the storm enveloping that entire island. And it was 62 miles across that eye of the storm. Now, I mention that because hurricanes are interesting beasts. They're a combination of chaos and calm. As you know, inside the storm, no winds or rain can be felt. But outside the eye, the storm rages. For those in the eye of the storm, they have a brief reprieve from nature's fury. Now, if the book of Revelation were to have an eye of the storm, I would say chapter 10 would be it. Not only is this close to the midpoint of the book, but in chapter 10, we see the pace slow down. Since chapter 6, this book has been relentless. We've seen one judgment after another has rocked the world. So far, the seven seal judgments have been open, and six of the seven trumpet judgments have already brought hell on earth. We've seen the rise of the Antichrist, and war and famine, 
Epidemics, asteroid strikes, and natural disasters of all kinds, even demonic hordes have been let loose to invade and torment the people of earth. This has brought in days of woe and wrath. And so when you come to Revelation 10, it's a much needed break from the storm. It's a much needed calm in the midst of global crisis. And just like that eye of the storm in Revelation 10, we have a chance to finally catch our breath as we are reminded here that the chaos of the tribulation is still organized chaos, which means that God is in control even when the whole world seems to be falling apart at the hinges. And that should remind us that no matter how out of control and how dark things may seem in our day, God is still in control. He's still on the throne. God hasn't wiped one bead of anxious sweat from His brow. The Trinity isn't calling an emergency council meeting to decide what to do next. God is sovereign, and God knows, and God sees, and God cares. So in Revelation 10, we're in the eye of the storm. The first thing that we see emerge in our passage today is a spectacular angel. Notice what the Bible says starting in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he sat on his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, in the book of Revelation, you see a lot of angels. In fact, there are 60 known references throughout the book of angels. Today, right now, we seldom think of the presence of angels in our lives. We know, though, that they are there. The Bible says that they are ministering spirits. They are God's invisible agents working behind the scenes. But during the end times, we see a different side of the angelic host. These amazing creatures will be carrying out God's final plan here on the earth. And John sees one of these spectacular angels as chapter 10 opens. Now, let me just note to you that the identity of this angel has left many scholars divided as they have studied this passage. There are some who argue that this is just another majestic angel like the archangel Michael. There are others, though, who say that the symbolism that is given here suggests that it is more than just an angel. It perhaps is the angel of the Lord, which if you know from your Old Testament studies, would be an appearance of Christ. Now, the word angel in the Greek just means messenger. And we see here in our text that this angel has come to deliver a message to John. But before we find out what that message is, let's break down the special features of this spectacular angel. First off, we notice his clothing. His clothing, we read there in verse 1, that he comes wrapped with a cloud. Now this imagery we've seen before in many prophetic passages. Clouds usually speak of God's majesty. It speaks of Christ's going and coming. You remember that when Christ ascended into heaven, he was there joined with two angels who ushered him through the clouds, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. And then we are told that when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, He will be riding the clouds. We saw that earlier in Revelation 1 and verse 7. So, 
The clouds speak of God's majesty. Then we notice that this angel is wearing an unusual crown. We see there that he has a rainbow over his head. Now we've already seen that rainbow in chapter 4 and verse 3 encircling the throne of God as the church and the living creatures worship God. But we think of the rainbow and we immediately go back to who? Noah. And the rainbow was given as a sign of God's faithfulness and God's mercy that after the flood God would no more destroy the earth by way of water. So we see the clothing and the crown. But then also notice the countenance of this spectacular angel. We read there that his face was like the sun. Now, we see a similar description also of Jesus earlier on in Revelation 1 verse 16. But there were times in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, where angels appeared with the same kind of brilliance. Remember the shepherds who were out tending their flocks and the angelic hosts appeared to them by night in Luke chapter 2 to tell them that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. And then when we get to the Easter morning and the empty tomb is discovered and the women go to find the stone rolled away and a brilliant angel standing there saying, Why do you seek the living among the dead? In Matthew 28 and verse 3. So we see his clothing, his crown, his countenance. But then also notice his course. Notice where his feet are going. It said there that his legs were like pillars of fire in verse 1. Now that legs and feet of fire symbolize that this angel is on a course of judgment. This is reminiscent of the same description given of Jesus earlier in the book, chapter 1, verse 15. And we notice that this angel has a an interesting position. He sat his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, according to verse 2. And what that suggests is that God Almighty is claiming sovereignty over every square inch of the earth. Every grain of sand is His. Every molecule and atom of oxygen is His. Every mountain, every stream, every lake bed, every fish in the sea, every bird in the air, everyone on the planet earth, God is sovereign over all. And in this passage, we see that with the angel extending one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, that God is overseeing and God is ruling and He's putting His foot down and He's claiming authority over it all. What does Psalm 24 say? The earth and the fullness therein belongs to the Lord. We see His course, His countenance, His crown, His clothing. But then notice what's in His control. What's in His control? And we see there, In verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. That's interesting because as we studied Revelation, we've already seen one scroll. Jesus held the seven-sealed scroll in chapter 5, which happened to be the title deed of the earth. And each time Jesus popped a seal on that, a judgment was unleashed in chapter 6. Well, this is not that scroll. This is a different scroll because as we continue to read, we're going to learn that this book that rests in the control of this angel is actually the remaining prophecy of Revelation. So everything that's going to happen from this point forward in chapter 11 through 22 is the rest of the message that John must declare. And then lastly, we see his cry. Notice it said there that he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. Who does that remind you of? Well, 
It should remind you of Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We see that in Revelation 5.5. But something interesting happens here when this angel cries out. The Bible says that seven thunders are issued forth. Listen, I don't know how you choose to describe this. Maybe this is a mighty angel, or maybe this is another picture of our glorified Lord. However you choose to interpret this, this mighty angel should teach us one thing. It should remove from our minds those concepts that we have so easily believed about what angels look like. How many of you know when you go to the card store, or when a holiday rolls around, or when you watch a commercial, you see a picture of an angel that isn't very threatening at all, is it? In fact, they look like pudgy little cupids resting on clouds, playing harps, And that's not very intimidating, but friend, I tell you what, if you saw an angel like this, one of God's special agents, you would be scared out of your boots. Listen to what Billy Graham wrote about in his book, Angels. He said this, It is true that angels are ministering spirits sent to help the heirs of salvation. But these same angels will carry out fearful judgments in the future, which the book of Revelation vividly describes. He says, the earth is the scene of cosmic conflict and it is a mind-boggling thing that you and I play a part in the battle of the ages along with ancient supernatural beings who are engaged in a struggle for this planet. For the church, they will have front row seats to see how God will use angels to fulfill His plan in the final defeat of Satan. Friend, aren't you glad you're on the winning side? Aren't you glad you know the King of Kings? Aren't you praising God this morning that you've been born again, washed in the blood, that tribulation and trial that this Bible speaks of in the book of Revelation isn't going to touch you because you'll be in glory with Christ and His angels ruling and reigning and celebrating because the Lamb of God has overcome. So we see a spectacular angel. And then look what else happens in our passage in Number two, I want you to notice a secret announcement. A secret announcement. Read with me verse 4. It says this, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. How strange, how secret that announcement was. John was amazed as he saw this mighty angel and he heard the cry. The seven thunders echoed through the hall of heaven. And John was about to take his pen and put it to parchment and write those words. And God said, no, don't write that, John. Now, the natural question that arises in our minds is why? Isn't the point of revelation to reveal all of the hidden things and what is about to happen in the future? Well, friend, I'm afraid that that information is above my pay grade. I think the only one who really knows the mysteries of God are the members of the Godhead. And sometimes the mysteries of God are too wonderful for explanation and too terrible for description. I can honestly say that I have studied and poured over many commentaries and books and I have nobody and don't know any good explanation of what these seven thunders are all about And friend, anybody who tells you that they do know what they mean, that ought to send your baloney meter going off because they don't know and John didn't write it down for us. Some sacred secrets are only known to God 
and we have to leave that to Him. In fact, look at what Deuteronomy 29, 29 said. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Friend, I have a hard time just taking in the things that God has revealed to me. How about that? My little brain has a hard time just grasping on to the eternal truths and the mighty things that God has delivered to us in His Word. And so I'm glad that God has given us what He has, but friend, I don't need any more because God knows what's best. Now, we may not have our curiosity about what those seven thunders are all about solved until we get to eternity. But friend, I can tell you this, God's ultimate plan for you and me and for Satan and this earth is going to be fulfilled. That is what this whole vow is about. Look at what verse 5 says. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it and there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mysteries of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So, friend, I can tell you that God's plan for the ages is going to be fulfilled. That passage right there tells us about it. You know, the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie, and I would add to that, it's impossible for God to lose. Now, as you're reading through this book, do you remember when we were in chapter 6, and we saw those martyred Christians, and their souls were under the altar there in heaven, and they were crying out for justice and for vindication. They were saying, Lord, how much longer until you avenge our blood? Well, now, this passage connects with it because right here, the angel says, there's no more delay. That time is up. And so he's telling us that the long wait for the saints is over. The gavel of God's judgment is about to fall. Satan's days of running wild on the earth are about to come to an end. The unbeliever who has clenched his fist in the face of God, his sand in the hourglass is about to run out. The angel is warming up to blow that seventh trumpet signaling the curtain to rise and the final act of God's divine drama is to begin here on the earth. And when this last bowl judgments are completed, the Bible tells us here that the mysteries of God would be fulfilled just as He announced to the servants and the prophets. What are those mysteries? Well, I think one of the most perplexing problems that we wrestle with today is something that Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 called the mystery of iniquity. And what is that? In other words, why does God seem to stay silent? Why do the evil prosper and the righteous suffer? Why is it that God seems silent? Why is it that God seems a million miles away? God, why do you sit on your hands when we cry out to you to move on our behalf. Why has Satan been allowed to run roughshod for so long? Well, friend, I'm telling you that this passage tells us that God's grace period has now come to an end. There's no ticks left on the prophetic clock when you arrive at this moment. I heard about some boys who were playing baseball. And this father who was running behind, he had left work and 
And this father arrived late to the game. And his son was out there playing in left field. And he got there just in time. And he saw his boy out there playing. And he said, son, how's it going? And he said, well, dad, it's not going real good. He said, we're getting beat right now, 13 to nothing. His dad tried to encourage him. He said, son, you said, you just keep your head up and you keep playing. And his son looked back and he said, dad... He said, it ain't as bad as you think. You see, we hadn't ha had a chance to go in bat yet. And what I want to tell you this morning is, friend, that the devil is up to bat right now, and it seems like God's people are losing, and that the good end that we've hoped for isn't going to happen. But, friend, God hadn't had a chance yet to step up to the plate. And, friend, I can tell you, when the final act begins, and God gets His chance, that He's going to settle the score once and for all. Every day that God delays is a blessing. Even though we pray, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Every day that Jesus tarries is a blessing to the sinner because it gives them that much more time to go to the cross and repent. But friend, God's grace has an expiration date. God looked at the wickedness of Noah in his generation. And as evil prospered on the earth, it came a day when God said, Enough! And then the flood waters came. God looked at the evil festering in Sodom. And when it got to the point where it was too much, God said, it's over. And then the fire fell. Jesus stood on the bow of a storm-tossed boat in the Sea of Galilee. And as the winds and the waves raged, Jesus had had enough and He said, Peace! Be still. And the sea became His glass. And friend, I'm telling you that the grapes of wrath are getting ripe. And the day is coming when God is going to harvest it and tread them out in the fierceness of His justice. And the saints of God ought to cry hallelujah, praise God, because I'm telling you, the Christian wins at the end. The child of God gets to wave the banner of victory. We get to stand on a new earth and praise Jesus once and for all as the Lamb of God, crucified, risen, and reigning. And so we see not only a spectacular angel, and a secret announcement. But friend, I want to tell you number three about a strange assignment. Look at what John is asked to do here. Have you heard the phrase, you are what you eat? Well, John has a strange assignment given to him. And it's got a couple of lessons for us. First part of this strange assignment that we should take note of is that we must digest God's Word. And you'll see what I mean by that as we read. Verse 9. And the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. How weird. Sometimes you read the Word of God, and it's a mystery as to what it means. But what God is telling you and me here, 
is that we must digest God's Word. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible that God's Word is related to in the way of food? It's symbolically referred to as food. God's Word is compared to bread. Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's Word is compared to milk. 1 Peter 2, 2. It's compared to meat in 1 Corinthians 3. David referred to God's Word like honey in Psalm 119, 103. And you know, one verse stored in the mind is worth more than a hundred Bibles stored on a shelf. If revelation is the act of God giving His Word to us, then transformation is what happens when we get God's Word in us and it changes us from the inside out. There are a lot of books out there. Some books inform the mind. Other books try to reform morals, but there's only one book that can transform the heart, and that is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. And just as John was instructed to take that scroll which contained the Word of God and consume it, you and I are to do the same thing with these 66 books. Take them and assimilate them as God's truth into our lives. I heard about a skeptical college professor. He was one of these uh, professors that studied anthropology, the study of humans and culture. And he did not like the God of Christianity. Well, he was off in the South Pacific, in those remote islands, and this professor was doing some studies on the primitive island people. And he came to one village, and he was stunned when he got there and noticed that the civilization that was there was quite advanced. They had a church. They had a school where children were learning to read. By the people had even developed advanced farming. And as the professor began to ask some questions around of the villagers, he learned that this village had actually been reached by a group of missionaries. They were Christianized, and Christianity and the gospel had transformed this society. Well, the professor, when he found that out, he was very indignant. He said, I want to talk to the tribal chief. So he was taken to the chief, and he began to apologize. He said, sir, I am sorry that these Western missionaries have come and they've destroyed your culture, and I'm sorry that they have fed you lies from the Bible. And he began to apologize for what he saw was an encroachment of Christianity. The chief heard the man and he said, come with me. I want to show you some things. And so he pointed out to some artifacts on the landscape. He said, you see that over there? He said, that was the altar where we used to crush the skulls of our enemies as we sacrificed them to our gods. And then he pointed over to another thing in the distance. He said, you see that over there? He said, that used to be the oven where we roasted the meat of our enemies before we ate them. And he says, listen, he said, were it not for the love of Jesus Christ that changed us from cannibals to Christians, you probably would have been our dinner by now. And you see, the application is this. Only God's Word has the power to transform the dirty, depraved heart of mankind. 
Because it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword seeing right through the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. When you read the Bible, it reads you and it speaks to you because it's inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the application of this passage, I believe, for you and I is don't just read the Bible. You have to feed on the Bible. It's your spiritual food. And some of us are quite anorexic and skinny, spiritually speaking. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the Victorian era, was once visiting a lady in his church. He noticed that up on the shelf was one of those old family Bibles, you know, big, thick tomes that you could use for a doorstop. And he saw that on the shelf something was rather odd about this family Bible, and he pulled it off, and he looked at it, and he noticed that there was a hole that had been bored through from one end of the book to the other. And he discovered that there had been a little worm. Some little worm had found its way up onto that book and it had chewed its way through from Genesis to Revelation. And Spurgeon thought about that later and he wrote this remark in one of his books. He said, from that hour, my desire was to be a Bible bookworm, eating through the Word, believing it and digesting it all. For by feasting on God's Word daily, I would ingest the wisdom of God. God. Friend, I don't understand it all, but I believe it all. And friend, I would rather stand before Jesus one day and hear Him say, you know, Derek, you preach the Bible too literally rather than hear Him say, Derek, why didn't you preach it the way that I intended it for it to be written in the first place? You see, when we digest God's Word, it'll have the same effect upon us that it did John. Do you see what happened to John as he ate this little scroll? He said in verse 10, It was sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Have you noticed that about the Word of God? There are parts of God that are sweet as the honeycomb. You begin to read those passages, those precious psalms, those promises, those verses given. And... You write them down, you memorize them, and they are a very present help in time of need. Those promises of God, they become sweet to you. You lean on them, you live by them. But friend, there are other portions of the Word of God that aren't so sweet. The other portions of God that when you read them, oh, they cut you to the quick. You read it and they hurt you. And friend, I'll be honest with you, even as a pastor, there are some mornings I wake up and I don't feel like reading my Bible. You know why? Because as I look into that Bible, that Bible is going to be looking into me. And it's going to shine the light on the dark places. And it's going to show the ugly sin in my heart and the pride in my heart, the things that I'm ashamed of. But friend, I'm telling you that God's Word is medicine. And if it cuts, it cuts only to heal and to grow you. And as I read this passage and I think about the sweetness of the Word of God and the bitterness of the Word of God, I think about all the preachers that we have there in our country standing behind pulpits who are afraid to preach the whole counsel of God. All they want to do is preach on the sweet stuff. All they want to talk about is the grace of God and the love of God and have a feel-good, happy time so that people leave with their heads hanging high 
as they go out the doors. And friends, sometimes you can't do that as a man of God, though you might want to preach on the love and the mercy of God. If God's Word comes to a part about judgment and sin and something we'd rather not deal with, you better preach it, preacher man. You better let the people know what God says. You see, God's Word comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. We have to preach it all, don't we? We have to read it all. We have to believe it all. We can't just go through it like a cafeteria line. Like we do when we go through the buffet. This ain't Burger King. You can't have it your way. God's Word isn't like that. You can't say, oh, I have a spoonful of love. And I have a spoonful of grace and some of this mercy on the side. But I don't want any of that judgment. I don't want what the Bible says about fornication and drunkenness and sin Friend, if you're going to be a faithful man or woman to the Word of God, you got to eat it all. you got to have it all because that's what keeps us balanced. We have to preach the love of God just as we have to preach the judgment of God. We have to preach that hell is hot and heaven is sweet. We have to tell people that man is a great sinner, but praise God, Jesus is a great Savior. You see, we don't love people if we don't tell them about God's holiness and God's judgment and God's wrath on sin. And at the same time, we aren't being truthful if we don't speak about God's mercy and grace. You have to have both. The bitter and the sweet. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote. He said, When we absorb prophetic truth, it will be as bittersweet food to our soul." Too often we traffic in undigested truth. Passively we preach about judgment when it ought to bring tears to our eyes. And yet anyone who preaches only that which is sweet is missing the rest of God's counsel. The same gospel that sends me to heaven will send another to hell. And if you preach the love of God without the wrath of God, you are dishonest. If you preach the wrath of God without the love of God, you are dishonest. We must take it all of God's Word, the bitter and the sweet. May God keep us from loveless truth and truthless love. And so we see that we have to digest God's Word. And then we finish up here in verse 11 and notice, here's the next challenge to you and me. The same challenge that John was given. Verse 11, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples. And nations and languages and kings. What kind of doctor would you be if you were a doctor that knew the cure to diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's and AIDS? You knew the cure, you knew the solution, and yet you never shared it with anybody. You wouldn't be a very loving doctor, would you? We have the cure to man's greatest problem, which is sin. How loving would we be as God's people if we never shared the answer to man's sin problem in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what John is told to do. He said, you've got to take this and you're not done yet. You've got to prophesy now to many nations and kingdoms and languages. The same burden is on our shoulders. We are to take this book with all of its blessings, yes, and with its burdens and proclaim it to a lost and dying world. And be unapologetic about it. We'll close with this. 
Ravi Zacharias for many years has been a fantastic evangelist. When he was a young man, he went through Vietnam, 1971, when the war was still raging over there. And he said he was going through that country on an evangelistic crusade. He was preaching to the country people of Vietnam and also to the American soldiers. He said when he got into Vietnam, he was given a translator. A 17-year-old young man by the name of Hien Pham. And there he is pictured right there. And when Ravi Zacharias would preach, Hien would translate into the Vietnamese language. Ravi said that after he left the country, the Viet Cong came in and captured scores of people. And Hien Pham was one of those who was carried off to suffer in a communist camp. His Bible was taken from him. In its place, he was given the communist manifesto. And the ultimate goal was to strip away from this young man his faith in God and to brainwash him into the ways of communism. Ken said that he was trapped in that prison. It was dark. It was hopeless. He was beaten. He was malnourished. He was brainwashed. He got to the brink of total collapse and he almost gave up his faith in God. And one night he said in desperation, he said, God, if you're still there, let me know. Because God, if you don't intervene, I can't make it anymore. The next morning, Hen woke up and he was given the worst duty. He was asked to clean out the latrines. So he said that he took a handkerchief, wrapped it around his face, went out there and started cleaning up the muck. And as he worked in that latrine duty, he noticed there was a scrap of paper inside of there. And it, it caught his attention because as he saw it, there was English writing on it. And he was so interested in that. How had anything English or Western gotten into this communist camp? And so he grabbed that thing up out of the latrine, wiped it off, and put it in his pocket, hoping that the... None of the soldiers saw what he did. He waited till that night. Under the cover of darkness, he pulled out a pocket flashlight and he shined that little light on that scrap of paper that he had retrieved from the latrine. And do you know what he saw in the corner of it? Romans chapter 8. And as he scrolled down, he read, And we know that all things work together for Him who are the called, those who love God. All things work together. Even cleaning out a filthy latrine in a communist camp. He said that his eyes filled with tears and he bitterly wept there on his cot. God was not dead. God was not far away. God was right there in the midst of the muck and the mess with him and sent him the word to encourage him. And Hen said that he woke up the next day. He went to the officer and he said, Sir, can I have latrine duty again today? Said so they sent him out there. And as he cleaned up the latrine day after day, he found one more scrap. The rest of Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15, and all these passages of the Bible. You see, what he had learned is that one of the communist guards there in the camp had taken his Bible and was using it as toilet paper. And he was disposing of it and... Hen got the job of cleaning all that up. And God gave back to him his word. And he said, 
that gave me enough hope and enough assurance that God was there to keep pressing on until His day of liberation came and He was freed from that camp. And friend, what I want to say to you as we close this today is that even in the chaos, even in the darkness, even in the pit of your life, God is in control. His Word is true. His Son is risen. His Holy Spirit is still speaking to you and me. And friend, His church is still marching on to victory. And a God who can meet a young man in a hopeless time of prison camp, friend, He can meet you in your hour of need as well.